Hello and welcome to Union Matters Podcast. Today's topic is the crisis in healthcare, and I'll be your host, I'm Dee Dee Sly. Today we have two guests, Gordon McDonald from Cape Breton. He's a postal worker and a community activist. He became involved in the healthcare crisis when the Liberal government announced the closures of Northside General Hospital and New Waterford Hospital in Cape Breton back in June. Welcome, Gordon. Thanks, Dee Dee. And we also have Chris Parsons. He's the provincial coordinator for the Nova Scotia Health Coalition, one of nine provincial health coalitions across Canada. The coalition goes back to 1979 uh, when it was founded uh, at a Medicare conference. And they are Medicare's watchdog and work across the country to protect, strengthen, and extend public health care. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I just wondered if we could start maybe in uh, how you both got involved in healthcare advocacy. Maybe, uh, Gordy, do you want to tell us how you first got involved in, in being an advocate? So, well, how I first got involved, well, um, long story, I guess. I, I've, I've always been involved in some capacity. Um, I've been a pretty active community member my whole life. Um, been a part of uh, regional government when regional government was tossed upon us back in around 90, 94, I believe, 93, 94. Um, was part of the uh, the group that was helping and promoting and supporting the Cape Breton Regional Hospital during the 90s at the same time in 94, 5, when that was being built. So so I've always been active in my community, but what, what brought me into the healthcare end of it is to get to, to be into it where I'm an organizer and organizing events was um, I recently had some surgery back in April of this year um, and I was doing had some follow-up uh, post-surgery stuff and I was in the Northside General Hospital getting some tests done and I'm flipping through my social media and I see that our Premier Stephen McNeil here in Nova Scotia was coming with Health Minister Randy Delory and our two local MLAs here, uh, Jeff McClellan and Derek Bumbercut. They're going to make an announcement uh, uh, concerning health care in Cape Breton. And at the bottom of that thing, there was a thing that said they were going to announce the closures of Northside General Hospital and uh, the New Waterford Consolidated. Yeah, that would have been, uh, so that was a complete surprise to you. Uh, it was a complete surprise to everybody, to the, to to myself, to everybody that was in the place, to to our local representatives on regional council. Um, so everybody, nobody knew what was coming. That's not the message that they were given in the legislature. They were been asked many times by the opposition members of the legislative assembly, uh, Tammy Martin and Eddie Orrell and. Those people that represent us here in Cape Breton, they've been asked and they've been told, no, they're not, those hospitals are safe, they're not closing. Um, problems with the emergency rooms, got to get some doctors, and that'll all be taken care of. But uh, lo and behold, that proved not to be the case. What did you know about the closures there, Chris? I think like everyone else, uh, it sort of blindsided everyone. I think um, you know, members of the legislature that represent those areas that were affected, asked on the floor of the legislature and we're told that there was no plan to do it. Uh, I think that it's uh, not just a problem for Cape Breton that this came out of nowhere, that there's no consultation, but it's it's a real problem for other 
communities in Nova Scotia and in rural Nova Scotia in particular, who on the one hand are being told by the provincial government to work on economic development, work on stemming the flow of out-migration of young people in their communities, being told uh, to recruit doctors. And all of those things are completely undermined when they can't guarantee to people who are considering moving there, who are considering staying there, that there's still going to be a hospital in six months. Um, and I, so I think that the uncertainty that that announcement created is a big deal, not just for Cape Breton, but I think is a really serious big deal for a lot of communities in this province. And I don't think that the provincial government took that seriously. What's uh, the current state of healthcare in Cape Breton right now? So with the health boards, uh, yeah. the fact that they eliminated our health boards and decided that they're going to run the whole ship from Halifax, yeah. that, that they were forewarned about that. They were forewarned by... Um, because they, they'd done this this pilot project in BC and Alberta uh, some years back, prior to the, the Liberal government being elected here in Nova Scotia. So when they first announced it as part of the platform, they were forewarned that this this, this kind of a crisis would eventually happen. Um, you no longer have any autonomy. Uh, Cape Breton Island is, is, a, is a fair-sized body, you know, and we no longer have any autonomy. We have no say. We've got no decision-making. We can't recruit our own doctors. Uh, we're, we're always relying on, on someone in Halifax to tell us in Cape Breton uh, what's better for us. And, and it hasn't worked. It's, it's, we've gotten, we've, we are, since this happened, our emergency rooms are constantly closed. All they are ever anyway now are walk-in clinics. That's all they are. They're open from 8, till five in the, eight to 5 or something. So they're just basically a walk-in clinic for people who don't have doctors. Um, just recently... Uh, with, with with us, uh, we have we have an issue with because there's so much pressure on the emergency rooms, and you you've got no services into in, in in at the regional emergency, and the amount of wait times and stuff. Um, people on the north side start heading to Bedeck emergency because Bedeck, small little community, emergency room was overstress. So that. That became so overstressed that the emergency room doctor up there decided that the province was still not doing anything for her, even though she was relaying all the issues, that, that she left and she went to Prince Edward Island. <clears throat> and then we had a part-time doctor, uh, Dr. Monica Duff, who I know very well. Um, she, she, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't help her uh, set up her part-time practice here, and she ended up moving to Northern Ontario. Um, because she had other, uh, she was doing other things, and you know, so, so they could have taken Doctor Dutt, put her in the deck, alleviated that problem, and we would have had two doctors still available in Nova Scotia here in Cape Breton. But but we have no decision making because we have no no local autonomy, uh, and that's our that's one of the biggest issues that I personally have is that people in Halifax make decisions for us. Um, the creation of a single health authority has basically created too many levels where people can't actually demand accountability at the local level. And so I think what we need to talk about is ways that we can democratize healthcare more broadly, right? So I think that that is at a really small level, that's uh, democratizing the decisions that are made between a patient and a doctor, right? Uh, a lot of patients talk about that, about wanting to be involved in their own treatment. And we know that there's improved therapeutic outcomes from that. But I think that at a bigger level, it's making sure that... Um, our elected officials at the top level are responsible, right? And we've seen the opposite move with that, with uh, now um, 
public accounts not being able to look at healthcare issues right now. Um, we've seen that with a refusal to answer questions, but we've also seen that with the fact that all of these major health announcements have been made by the premier, not the minister who's actually responsible for that, Health Minister Delory. Um, but also, I think that when we look at that, what we have to look at is uh, even in the later years of the existence of the various health authorities at the local level, um, people who actually sat on those, I, I've talked to people who sat on the Capital Health Authority Board, said that they were ignored as well. Um, we've seen it with the IWK. There was a lack of board oversight there that actually led to the former CEO of the IWK now being charged with fraud. So what we've seen is this move away from democratic control of our institutions that are important to us. And that hasn't just been in healthcare. Um, we've seen that with the elimination of school boards, which is in some ways kind of wild that that happened so easily. Um, it, it was a huge change in the way we, we govern uh, one of our, the other most important public services that we have in the province. So I think that when we talk about... Um, the merger, the forced merger of the health boards into a single Nova Scotia health authority and into the IWK. Um, but we need to think about that as uh, as sort of a symptom of a wider problem, which is an attack on the way that we govern ourselves. And part of that is an attempt to make it easier to roll back the services uh, that we actually take for granted. And those are services like education, they're services like healthcare, they're things uh, like social services and social assistance, they're things like public housing, which basically doesn't exist anymore in this province. And as regular Nova Scotians, we increasingly have very little control over the things that are actually important to us. And those things are health, they're related to health. Absolutely, poverty, it's related to health health outcomes. Oh, housing, those are all, yeah, is that part of the healthcare coalitions, uh, you know, you're always looking at all of those things? Yeah, I mean, the way I always phrase it is um, that people like to talk about emergency rooms in particular um, as being this the most obvious symptom of the healthcare crisis. And I always say that the overcrowding of emergency rooms, the closures of emergency rooms, people going into emergency rooms because they don't have a family doctor, that's a result of problems uh, elsewhere in the public healthcare system, right? So that's the result of the fact that you can't get a family doctor, you can't get long-term care, you can't get home care. That's because you can't afford your pharmaceuticals, um, things that you need. But all of those problems and the reason you enter into the healthcare system at all, the reason you're entering that is because of problems elsewhere further up um, in sort of... Uh, what's basically been a decades-long assault on the Canadian welfare state, um, which means that you can't get public housing, right? If you don't have good housing, if all of your income is going to substandard, essentially slum housing, then you're going to be more sick. If you don't have access to a job, if we design cities that you can't walk around in, um, if you uh, don't have access to nutritious food because you simply can't afford it, um, or you don't have time to prepare it because you've got family obligations uh, as well as work obligations, all of those things force you into the healthcare system in the first place. And then the lack of uh, things like primary, long-term, and home care force you into the emergency system. So what we've seen is that um, the actual cost of doing things like operating emergency rooms has gone up because we're not spending that money uh, earlier in the healthcare system. But more importantly, we're not spending it on public health initiatives, which include things like maintaining a proper welfare state, which is ultimately just about Canadians taking care of each other. Um, and unfortunately, um, there's been a, a long-term erosion of that over the last several decades. What do you think of that, Gordy? How are things in Cape Breton? economically so and chris made some real good points as far as housing and poverty and and things of that nature because um we happen to be in one of the most uh, um, um as far as poverty goes we're 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 at we're really high up on the poverty list across the country right now here in cape breton i know like uh, mark oiking's uh riding here is probably was ranked number two <laughs> which is shameful that, that that's happening as far as when it comes to poverty. Um, more and more people uh, are homeless uh, here in Cape Breton. Um, 
recently we just had a doctor retire and another doctor's gone from off sick. Um, 5,000 more residents here with no family doctor uh, to go with the thousands of others here in Cape Breton that have no family doctor. Um, when, when you have people that are hungry and can't get health services, uh, it, 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 you're right, uh, it's all about health care. And uh, the fact that they've eliminated the, the decision-making in each of these communities, in, in all parts of Nova Scotia, um, you know, is contributing to, to the way we we apply uh, services in, in these areas. So, um, yeah, it, it, poverty, I, I, as someone who's been a letter carrier out on the streets for a long time, um, you see it, you see it, see it more and more. And uh, you see it with with the, the social issues that are that are happening here as well. So uh, and for them to, to come in and announce closures of hospitals and uh, with no direction on what kind of health care we're going to have left in these communities when they're done. Um, emergency rooms are absolutely uh, a, a number one issue here in Cape Breton. Uh, I don't know if anybody's been to an emergency room lately, but the conditions in, in, in these places are, are, and the wait times are just, you know, eight to 12 hours, sometimes more sitting in a in a very not very nice area yeah that makes makes sense i'm also thinking it this kind of moving away from democracy um fits in with a larger a larger concern that we're seeing all over the place i think that it's important to think about healthcare, and i think two ways in this province one of them is um that the healthcare crisis is a moral crisis right and i think it's important to think about what it means when we say that we're not going to invest in healthcare. What we're saying is that um, rather than tax, um, you know, the Irvings and the Sobies uh, and uh, the Stronics of the world, uh, of the country, the people we have in this country that have massive wealth, rather than tax them at the same rate we taxed them at 50 years ago, we're willing to let people die in the hallways of our hospitals, right? In 2018 in Canada, we were one of the richest societies in the history of the world. And we have access to medical science and technology that was un, like undreamable. We couldn't even imagine that 40 years ago. You look at the, the medicine that you see on like Star Trek, and it's like that is barely better than what we have today. And in some ways we've outpaced it. Yet we are making the decision collectively that we don't care about our neighbors, our family, strangers, that we don't owe them a duty morally to take care of them when they get sick. And that everyone, we're saying that we don't believe that everyone in this country and everyone in this province should have equal access to health care, regardless of how much money they have in their pocket. And to me, that is a significant moral and ethical failing that I don't think people have taken seriously. And that I think that particularly political decision makers, elected officials need to answer to, that they need to quite frankly tell us that they believe that, um, making sure that bankers and investors and, and the wealthiest families of this country deserve their wealth more than everyone else deserves to essentially survive or live a dignified life. So I think that's one way we need to think about it. The The other thing that I think we need to think about larger at a political level is that um, one of the reasons why Canada has, up until very recently, appeared to be much more immune to kind of... Um, what's often called sort of like a reactionary or right-wing sort of populism, what I would call sort of an anti-democratic impulse. I think populism is sometimes, is a shorthand that's used for it, but it's it's essentially driven by elite interests. Um, one of the reasons why Canada has had been able to serve as some sort of, have some sort of bulwark against it is has been a strong uh, welfare state. And that for a lot of people, things like uh, a reasonable 
level of health care, reasonable access to things like social assistance, the possibility of retirement, that those things, as well as like feeling like your voice matters in some way, are the things that keep people from siding with strong-arm dictators, right? It's when things become horrible, when people lose hope, um, that they're able to find themselves sort of in the thrall of reactionary demagogues. So if we're actually concerned about things, uh, about the things that have happened in places uh, like Brazil or, um, you know, are, are emerging in the United States, that what we need to do is actually protect things like healthcare. And I think that in particular, the fact that Halifax um, is doing pretty reasonably well for the most part, and that's not true for everyone in Halifax, but statistically, in terms of healthcare and employment uh, and incomes, Halifax is doing all right. But the rest of the province, particularly rural parts of this province, are doing very poorly um, economically and in terms of access to social services means that there is uh, an increasing divide in Nova Scotia that I think is a real political problem that for those of us who care about um, protecting uh, a social safety net, that we need to take that seriously because those are the conditions that actually give rise to uh, people who are willing to uh, side with reactionary um, you know, demagogues and strong arm and strongmen. Um, and that's what we've seen historically, both in uh, internationally, but including in Canada, at moments where things like social credit and other uh, sort of uh, reactionary movements in this country have really gotten a hold. I was thinking, and also what, what comes out of a failing or a an overly stressed public healthcare system is that those people who can barely afford it or can afford it, who are richer, they look to private. Um, they're more likely to go somewhere else. Uh, do you see that as a, how do you see a threat of private healthcare? Is that growing in Canada? Are we seeing expressions of that? Should we be worried? Absolutely. Um, it, in Nova Scotia in particular, I think we've seen really, the problem is we already have a lot of privatization that people don't think about. I think um, the ambulance system is a good example of that. Um, it is uh, was sold out to a private contractor um, years ago. And I think that that's not a slight against the people, the very good people who work uh, as uh, in emergency medicine uh, as paramedics. Um, but I think that we also see it in things like Scotia Surgery, which is a private um, surgery clinic in Nova, in uh, Halifax, or it's actually in Dartmouth on um, my side of the harbor. Um, but also we see it in other things like the emergence of private clinics. Um, we see it with uh, a big one is eye clinics. People are often being double billed for eye surgeries. Um, we know there's a handful of clinics that do that. Um, and we've seen it recently with the introduction of an attempt by some companies to profit off of uh, the lack of access to primary care and are looking to say that if you can pay $30, you can jump the queue and get into uh, see a, a nurse practitioner, for example. So we have those aspects of it which are creeping in. And there's a real danger that what's going to happen is is that um, we'll see the wealthy or those who are desperate enough to pay for it and are being exploited and, f- and forced to pay for it essentially out of desperation, uh, create one system for themselves which will siphon off resources uh, out of the public system. So if you think there's a problem where there aren't enough doctors or nurses now, um, imagine what happens when uh, the wealthy can buy a whole new system for themselves, but it also makes it much easier for those who can pay to say, well, why am I funding the public system at all? I'm not getting anything out of this. So it erodes the very social solidarity um, that underpins healthcare in Nova Scotia and in Canada. And I think we need to think about healthcare as a promise that we make to other Canadians, right? That it is uh, a promise that when you get sick, um, whether you're my family, my friend, or a complete stranger, uh, I'll chip in to take care of you. 
Um, and when we introduce privatization to that system, uh, we're breaking that promise and we're eroding uh, the very underpinnings uh, that allow that promise to be kept. And I think that that's a serious concern for the health coalition. And, and it's important for us to not just think about um, ways in which we can stop privatization, but things that have been private, making them public. So for us, and I know that uh, some of our, many of our allies, all of our allies in labor, have stood firmly to say that we need a public pharmacare system. Right, um, that will alleviate some of those problems on the emergency system by making sure people get the medication they need, but also that will bring back into uh, the the public sphere um, something that has been the purview of for-profit uh, insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies for too long, and that has put private uh, profits ahead of the public needs of patients and Canadians as a whole. What do you think about privatization, Gordy? You seen any of that kind of stuff? You feeling that in Cape Breton? So, so that's 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 some of the big fears we have here in Cape Breton um, with the announced closures of our hospitals. So, what, so what's going to happen to our long-term care? Um, what, what, is that going to go from public to private? So, you know, things things are are tough enough in in, in long-term care now as it is. Uh, imagine that going private, where it's uh, when you go private, uh, it's um, you know, it's for profit. They got to make money off it. So, you know, so those people, as Chris was saying, when you come into the two-tier healthcare and you got lots of money, I guess you know, I guess you can get some good good care. But if you're just uh, you know a regular middle-class working person who's you know struggling to get by, like the majority of people uh, in most of Canada, um, what kind of care are you going to get? Um, you know, you, you don't have to look any further than. Uh, you know what was recently going on with bed sores in in these facilities, and the kind of care that that, that was happening in those places. Uh, so can you imagine broadening this this kind of stuff out to the private sector? Um, we've never had any any good success uh, going from public to private. Uh, it's never been beneficial to 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 the regular Canadian. It's it's all about making more money. Um, the fact that that the elite are, are continually um, holding on to their, their their money while while the rest of Canadians are struggling on a regular basis to get by, and you know governments are are supporting this kind of this kind of action, it, it's um, it's not helpful to to just regular Canadians like myself and you guys. Uh, I have a, I've, have a very big fear of what's going to happen with with private uh, with private enterprises. Um, the, the the announcement from the government about the QE QE two hospitals in Halifax going P threes, um, how much that's going to cost Nova Scotians billions of dollars above any any costs, and and we have no control over over anything until for thirty years it gives away our our, our ability to have any any say in any control. Um, it's very concerning to me these these. Private clinics open up where you can go in, you can pay the extra money to get some kind of health care. Uh, again, they scare me. Um, you know, uh, what, it seems like we're all forgetting about, about the next the generations that are coming up behind us. I mean, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, like I said earlier, I'm at 56. I'm, I'm at the other end of that spectrum. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, that I have, you know, I got a lot of, I got seven grandkids that are young enough to be, you know, coming up through it. So what's going to happen to them when it comes to their health care? Uh, the lack of transparency coming from government here, in, our, our government here in Nova Scotia, is, it, it, it's really sickening how, how secretive they are. They, 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 don't, they don't discuss anything. 
Um, it's, it's not above them to straight out lie to the public. Uh, that they can straight out lie in the legislature and they continually get away with it. And they got enough, uh, they got enough words spewing out that, 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 you know, some people pick it up as true. And, and, and these things, these, these things are problems. And, um, it, you mentioned earlier about eliminating the school boards. Well, you know, I, I still wonder in my head, how do you, how do you take a, a democratic body like electus school board members and eliminate them? Well, if that's the case, why, why can't we find someone who can say, well, let's eliminate this government. They were elected too. And let's put somebody else in there. Uh, so, so what's happening and with, with the way uh, this capitalist society is working, it's not working for regular Canadians or regular Nova Scotians. And uh, the private enterprise, when it comes to health care, uh, scares me real, a lot. It didn't happen. It didn't work for the schools. It didn't, it didn't work for Nova Scotia Power. Uh, it's not going to work for health care. It'll, it, it'll definitely put us uh, pitting the rich against the poor. This, this thought that uh, it's going to be more costly, um, do you think communities are going to have to bear that cost, Chris, like into the, into the future? What will it cost? Um, what will it cost uh, Nova Scotians? Absolutely. So I think a good example of this is the uh, proposed P3 model. Uh, they call a P3 model a public-private partnership model to be used to replace uh, the services and buildings that were at the VG site in Halifax. Um, and they're going to move some of those to uh, an outpatient clinic in uh, Bears Lake, um, which is its own nightmare, um, but also uh, next to the Halifax Infirmary site. And they're talking about a $2 billion deal to build uh, new medical facilities. And, and that number um, is incredibly high. I mean, $2 billion is is higher than we would assume it would cost to build that. If you look at comparable facilities in places like British Columbia or Ontario, or even in Nova Scotia, um, but we don't know what those numbers look like, really, because the report that they're basing it on from uh, Deloitte, who are themselves uh, have a huge, huge interest in promoting P3 themselves, these privately financed schemes where private industry is brought into, uh, quote unquote, partner with uh, public bodies to build public infrastructure, but in reality end up uh, being privately owned or at least essentially uh, privately maintained uh, by the private industry. Um, the report that Deloitte um prepared for the provincial government isn't being made public. Um, quite frankly, I don't think we can trust those numbers, even if it were made public. But uh, if we knew those numbers, we could look at them and analyze them and figure out whether or not they are real. Um, but the provincial government is saying that they're not going to release them. Uh, and that's just uh, a sign of more to come. That's what these uh, so-called P3 deals do, is they obscure uh, where public money is going and claim that it's uh, a necessity because of uh, trade secrets, right? Um, but when we think about that, that we think about the fact that uh, in BC, uh, there was recently a report um, from the Columbia Institute saying that it cost uh, something around, I think it was a uh, 1.3 billion dollars over the last decade extra to build P3 infrastructure instead of normal publicly procured infrastructure. Uh, in Ontario, um, we saw numbers uh, north of $4 billion over a nine-year period there in uh, money that was wasted by going into P3 models and P3 deals um, instead of using normal public procurement models. Um, so if we look at it in Nova Scotia, if we're talking about a, you know spending a billion dollars um, that was unnecessary on uh, a hospital that is essentially just subsidizing private profit, that that's money that's not going on into frontline services, right? So if you think about that, every time the government says that there's no money to spend on health care, they're just giving that 
money to a consortium of private companies that are going to design, maintain, and build a hospital that we should build and own and maintain ourselves. Um, and it's the same thing, too, where we look at it that one of the things that really concerns me, as Gord said, is this question of, like, what are we going to do for the next generation? Um, I myself am I'm 33, just recently turned 33, so I'm on the younger side, I suppose. And I think about the fact that, you know, McNeil um, and higher-ups in the Nova Scotia Health Authority, in 10 years, they're going to be on very generous pensions that I can never dream of having. Um, and they're not going to have to worry about these, these things. But as someone who's still going to be, uh, you know... In, living in Nova Scotia, hopefully have a family in Nova Scotia. It scares me to think that we've got, we're going to have this bill due on these P3 hospitals, uh, this P3 hospital, the, the P3 highways that are being built. Um, but also we're looking at the fact that this provincial government refused to play hardball and negotiate a deal around the Canada Health Accord um, and demanding a Canadian Health Accord that actually kept pace with the funding needs of the province. And the federal government is giving us, over the next 10 years, $993 million less than we need under the Canada Health transfer, um, which is another ticking time bomb. Um, and that is the result of the fact that this provincial government is is willing to play hardball and, and quite frankly, be unfair when it comes to negotiating with like nurses and teachers. But when it comes to negotiating with the federal government, um, they rolled over and were the second province to sign these bad bilateral deals. So if you look at the fact that we're going to be almost a billion dollars short on the Canada Health transfer, um, because of the changes to the escalator clause there. If you look at the fact that we're probably going to spend north of a billion dollars more potentially on uh, public infrastructure uh, than is necessary, that this is money that's coming directly out of frontline services, right? That's money that's not producing uh, new long-term care beds. That's money that's not producing... um, that's not training new doctors and new nurses, not figuring out incentives to have them stay here, that's not innovating uh, in frontline delivery. And so we're essentially leaving money on the table um, and giving it either to uh, private companies or um, refusing to demand it from the federal government in exchange for them not having to make the difficult political decision of raising more revenue through things like natural resource royalties or through uh, corporate taxation. Um, that all of these are things that, like I said, we're, we're leaving it on the table, and that's money that's not being spent on Nova Scotians. And you combine that with the fact that we are having uh, significant demographic challenges going forward, and uh, an elderly population, an aging population, a population that's going to have increasing acuity when it comes to healthcare needs. Um, I'm scared for the future of the province, and I, and I think that it's something that is not uh, being taken as seriously by particularly the party in power. But quite frankly, um, you know, all the political parties at this point there are really significant uh, challenges going forward that are that are not being thought about in terms of how we actually budget for public health care um, and that there isn't as far as I can tell any sort of long-term plan for what public health care is going to look like in 15 years and I worry that that's because people in power think that we aren't going to have a public system or at least a, a single tier universal public system in 15 years. How, how are you organizing there in Cape Breton and what are your next steps and what do you think are some solutions? What would you like to see? So so for all the things that Chris was referring to is, is all the reasons that we here in Cape Breton are taking on some action and, you know, we're, we're going to take the grassroots approach. Um, our group is called uh, Capers for Healthcare, uh, four being the number four. You can find us on Facebook. Um, that's where we're doing our, our, our all of our push from. Um, so, 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 you know, um, the pushback, the fact that Canadians and Nova Scotians uh, know very little about the discussions that we're having here, uh, the fact that there's no transparency from this Nova Scotia government and they're just charging ahead and not listening to anybody that has any inside knowledge uh, and, and they're just steamrolling through. 
Um, so, so we've taken a stand that, and I, you know, again, I, I come from the postal worker background, so I have a fairly, fairly militant uh, background uh, in, in, in behind me uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, and, and I, and I, for one, personally believe that we, as a society, have become much too nice to government, and you know, we've been very nice to allow them to do all the things to us that that, that they have done. Uh, and I think it's time to get back to being a little bit more militant and a little bit more to the squeaky wheel gets to grease kind of approach. So what we've done here in Cape Breton, we've, uh, we, when, when these announcements come up, we organized, a couple of us got together, um, and we said we're sick of politicians, and so we said we want to have a town hall. We want to hear from the community. We want to hear from the people that, that our government is going out in the public and saying, oh, we're talking to everybody. Well, we wanted to find out. So we had two town hall meetings. One in the north side, which brought in uh, over 400 people. One in uh, Waterford that brought in uh, upwards of 250 people on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, both of them, um, we had we were challenged in those rooms to to do more. Uh, so, so what we've done, we said because we had we had our um, MLAs, Tammy Martin, NDP, uh, MLA Eddie Oral, uh, Progressive Conservative. Uh, both of those are people that their hospitals announcements are in those writings. So we had them in the legislature directly asking um, Minister Delory, uh, the health minister Delory in Nova Scotia to come to these town hall meetings, uh, answer some questions from the people. Um, and, and, and shamefully, the, Mr. Delory has absolutely no ability to be able to answer a one-word sentence like, Mr. Minister, can you come to Cape Breton to attend these town hall meetings? He didn't know what yes or no meant, so he, he babbled about all kinds of other stuff that didn't still didn't answer the question. So he avoided the question. He refused to come. His, his premier didn't show up. Health minister didn't show up. Our two ML, liberal MLAs here in, in, in Cape Breton that, that represent the people here didn't show up. Uh, so we said, the hell with you. If you don't want to come to us, I guess we'll go to you. So on November the 16th, uh, 2018, um, uh, we're, we're going to Mr. Delory and Annie Ganesh. So our plan is to, and we're, we're, we've been fundraising now for the last week. Uh, we have enough funding to, we have enough at least for one bus, um, possibly two or three, by the looks of things. Um, we're having a motorcade put together. And we're inviting anybody who has any interest in in healthcare here in Cape Breton to join us on this adventure. Uh, we're going to get ourselves up to the causeway. We're inviting the media in. We're going to get off the buses. We're going to walk across the causeway in, in a very uh, organized fashion. Uh, we're going to hopefully be assisted by the RCMP. We're not planning on closing the causeway down. We're going to leave one lane open. So traffic can can be mobile. Hopefully, it won't take any more than thirty to thirty-five minutes to get across the causeway. So we're not tying people up too long. And then we're getting back on the buses and we're driving them over Cade to Mr. Delory's office, where uh, he's he he has knowledge that we're going to be there, whether he's there or not. That's that will be up to him. Um, but we will be there, uh, and we'll be there, and we'll be. We're making the, the, the noise that they seem to be so um, against. And uh, if Mr. Laurie's not there, I guess we'll sit in his office until either he shows up or somebody shows up to escort us out. So, um, so 
So, so, so we're. What are you asking for? What will you ask, Delore? We, we want answers. We we know nothing about our hospitals closures. We know nothing about the health care we're going to have. We don't know where the services are going to be. We know nothing about the long term health that's in those, uh, the long term beds that are in those hospitals. We know nothing about our emergency rooms. We're saying they're closing our emergency rooms. We're saying, how do you put 50,000 people, more people over at the regional hospital emergency room? Whether you expand it or not, uh, you don't have the doctors to, 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 you don't have the doctors to be able to work it. Uh, you don't have enough doctors to be able to take care of patients here in Cape Breton. So, so we are sitting in on an announcement that says we're taking your hospitals away and we're not telling you anything else. And that's where we're at, and we're not we're not accepting that. Uh, we we demand answers. We're not asking for answers. We're demanding answers at this point. We want to know what's happened to our long-term beds. We want to know what's happening to the workers in those buildings. We want to know if any of those workers are losing their jobs through any kind of attrition that they may have in mind. We want to know if those are going to be if it's going to be as long-term going to be private or public. We want to know. Uh, we we're not, don't want to know. We're demanding that our emergency rooms are staying in place in both North Sydney and New Waterford uh, in some capacity, whether, whether like, again, whether it's a new building or not, irrelevant. It's about the health care that's provided in these communities. And we're hoping that we can fill four or five buses and we have a motorcade that's going to take us forever to get across the island to, to, to Antigonish. And uh, you know, people are set up. Uh, they 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 know that they haven't been involved in any of the, any of the, any of the information. And we we listened to what our premier and our minister said over the last two years uh, about these hospitals, uh, blatantly telling our reps representatives in there that these buildings were not were safe. They were going to be closing. And so so because we're we're in a we're in a blind zone. We have no information. It's like a it's like a a media blackout with with the Nova Scotia government, and we're, so so we're we're going to get answers. And if we don't get the answers there, then we'll stage something else where we will get answers, and we'll follow these guys around until until we get the answers we want. That sounds like something we we have to do these days is just demand uh, demand accountability, demand answers, because the the uncertainty that uh, Chris was talking about that's what that's what's uh, plaguing you know Cape Breton right now. It sounds like uh, you know what do you think about this, Chris? And, and as I said, it's not just plaguing Cape Breton. I think that it is a ve- very real problem uh, for all parts of this province that, without any warning, without any discussion with the community, without any input, um, without well, with clear denials just weeks before in the legislature, uh, this government went ahead and shuttered two hospitals. Um, I think that if you're in any other, when I've talked to uh, people from other municipalities, including elected officials, and, and we work with the Nova Scotia Health Coalitions, we helped found uh, what's called the Rural Nova Scotia Healthcare Crisis Working Group, which is made up largely of folks on the South Shore, but we have, have people across the province. Um, people in those municipalities... Um, are terrified because they don't know, right? So whenever, you know, when there's chronic closures in, say, the Roseway uh, Hospital uh, in Shelburne, the question everyone has is, like, is this just a precursor to our hospital being shut down? Are we going to have to drive 50 minutes in either direction to go to either Liverpool or Yarmouth? Um, same thing in Digby. Um, are they trying, are they not, is the reason we don't have doctors because they don't want doctors here? People don't know. And that is, um, 
difficult not just when it comes to planning healthcare. It's difficult when it comes to planning things like economic development. It's difficult to uh, to think about as a young family whether or not you're going to live outside of Halifax. Right now, um, you know, my partner and I had a conversation about whether or not we were going to leave Nova Scotia um, in the spring or leave Halifax in the spring. We we're going to stay in Nova Scotia. But did we want to be, you know, an, uh, 45 minutes out and commute in? And at the end of the day, there were all kinds of reasons we didn't. But one of them was just like, we'll never get a doctor, right? Like, what do you do? Like, are we also going to have to drive into downtown to go to the hospital um, to access outpatient services, all of those things? And that's a very real decision for people. And what it means is that that economic inequality between uh, the HRM and uh, places outside of the HRM uh, is only going to grow as a result of this. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we'll, we're certainly going to, I can guarantee you, Gord, there'll be at least two cars worth of people from Halifax that'll make their way to Andiganish uh, on the 16th. Um, and uh, on October 13th, we held rallies in five communities, um, including like Digby, Yarmouth, uh, there was one in Sydney, uh, demanding uh, action on rural health care and, and to say that we're not going to let this slide off the agenda. And for the Nova Scotia Health Coalition too, um, like our general meeting is coming up on uh, January 18th. Um, and we'd encourage folks to, to also go to that and, and think about ways in which we can organize, uh, not just for the next 12 months, but 24, 36 months out to make sure that we hold uh, some accountability uh, or hold the government to some accountability. And also think, I think really importantly about the fact that we're um, at least, or sorry, at most 12 months away from a federal election, but uh, it could be called earlier, um, as has happened previously, even though we have sort of set election dates. And we need to think about what demands we're making to the federal government, because I do think that right now the economic situation in Nova Scotia is one where there isn't a ton of wiggle room financially. Um, and that what the reason for that is because the federal government has stepped away from its responsibility for things like post-secondary education, uh, for things like social programming, and that includes public health care. And so we need the federal government to re-enter into public health care through both uh, a public national uh, pharmacare program, but also to re-enter in terms of core funding to make sure that our hospitals and our doctors and our nurses and our long-term care facilities are, are properly funded. Um, and the federal government has stepped away from that. And that's been, a, again, a decades-long project. Um, so I think that what we need to do is we need to think about ways in which uh, we don't just rely necessarily on election dates, but do things like the folks in Cape Breton have done, which is, uh, once again, make politicians scared of us. Are we talking about also the mental health services as well as as physical health services? It's interesting, but like some people um, don't think of that. They're like thinking of mental health kind of being separate somehow, I feel. What do you think about that? I think one of the challenges we have um, is that when it comes to sort of like the acute care, the emergency care, the long-term care and home care systems, uh, we have a, a public health care system that's in crisis there. What we don't have is a public mental health care system at all. Like it basically can't be in crisis because it more or less doesn't exist. Um, if you want access to a, a psychologist or a counselor, you almost definitely need to pay out of pocket or have private insurance. Um, there's just basically is virtually no public health care system. And I think that when it comes to mental health, and I think that part of the problem is, is that privatization in particular has become so deeply embedded in the way that um, healthcare is understood when it comes to mental health. Um, and that is, the way that creeps in is, is incredible in terms of things like um, mental health care, uh, like the, the role of pharmaceuticals in it, which I think uh, pharmaceuticals certainly play an important role in managing uh, mental health, but um, it's not the only way, but that is largely how research is funded, quite frankly, but also in terms of uh, the research that is happening, the way that that is commercialized in our public universities to be exported to other countries, but also used here, um, the ways in which uh, psychologists, basically, I know psychologists who have tried to get hired in the public system, who believe in the public system, 
but go into private practice or can get part-time work in the public system through public institutions like schools and universities or uh, you know the IWK, and then also have to set up a private practice to charge people. If you want to not charge people for uh, your services as a clinical psychologist, it's almost impossible in this province. You can't make a living, particularly, and I think when we talk about doctors being underpaid, I think there's a lot of resentment towards how much doctors do make. But part of the big problem is, is that a lot of those doctors are carrying $250,000, $300,000 in student loan debt. And the same thing happens to psychologists. Uh, the same thing happens to nurses. So we've incentivized a system where we have to increase the wages of doctors and nurses because we're asking them to take on massive public and private debt in order to actually fund their uh, education. And a lot of them just want to go out and help people. And it bars people who might come from lower backgrounds who can't take on the risk of large debt uh, from entering the profession at all. So I think when we think about mental health, um, part of the problem that of the crisis in healthcare and just how bad the problem is when it comes to emergency rooms and long-term care uh, and access to primary care in terms of, of doctors and nurse practitioners is that we have this massive problem that needs to be solved because people are dying right now. And it doesn't give us the room to think about how do we solve things like the uh, like dealing with the fact that we don't have a public mental health care system that functions in any way. And that's seen as an extra when it shouldn't be an extra. It should be the bare minimum of what we demand. Um, and, and I think that to go along with that, um, just to quickly finish it up, is that we also need to think about the ways in which uh, this crisis has prevented us from thinking about the ways that different communities are impacted by the healthcare crisis. So there's a healthcare crisis, but different communities are impacted differently. So for example, um, if you're a woman, uh, n no access to uh, a nurse who's trained uh, to give you care after you've been sexually assaulted um, is a massive problem, right? The fact that that is uh, a gender issue. The fact that you can't access um, prenatal care and can't have your child delivered in your community, that you have to travel from, say, Shelburne to Bridgewater to access a prenatal checkup or to actually have your child delivered because there's no uh, doctors who do that anymore, um, but also because uh, there's a chronic lack of access to midwives, that's a gender issue. Um, the fact that we haven't even begun to address the fact that there are differential needs for um, First Nations, uh, immigrant, and African Nova Scotian communities in this province because uh, all of our energy is dealt with trying to deal with this sort of... Um, the problems around uh, universal access to primary care, the fact that we don't even address the differential needs of those communities and the cumulative harm of structural racism against those communities um, is also a huge problem. So I think that um, it's difficult because sometimes the healthcare crisis can be so daunting that you don't know where to start. And I think that taking on the, the things that are happening in our community um, is a starting point. And some places that, and for some people, that looks like taking on mental health care. But the real challenge for folks who are trying to work on mental health care, including the health coalition, is that you don't know where to start because as bad as you know, the primary and acute and, and emergency and long-term care systems are, the mental health care system just straight up doesn't exist as a public entity um, or, or it's so small that it, it might as well not exist. Thank you. No, Chris, said it, Chris articulated it very well. Uh, and I'd just like to point out on, on that note and, and on mental health, there's not one child psychologist left here in Cape Breton, and we just saw our lead psychiatrist here in Cape Breton as well. So <laughs> mental health services and with the crisis that we have going on here with the opioids and the overdoses and the, the addictions and those kind of those kind of problems with, with mental health um, were even further set back because... You know, like I said, presently, not one single child psychologist here on the island. Yeah, and I think that um, as we wrap this up, I think a good thing to think about is the way in which healthcare represents all of these wider questions we have about what sort of world we want to build, right? So I think that we need to think in Nova Scotia when we ask about who should 
ultimately make decisions about what's best for the public. And, and we would say that the public should make those decisions, that they should be democratically arrived at. And we see an assault on that when we see things like um, the decision to close two hospitals in Cape Breton without any public consultation. We ask about, you know, do we want a society where we care for each other? I think that we, we answer that question when we say that we would rather have people suffer and die in the hallway of a hospital rather than charge fair taxation to those who can afford to pay for it. Um, and I think that uh, that's what's in a lot of ways really interesting uh, about healthcare and important about the fight for healthcare is that it is ultimately a fight for a question of uh, what sort of society do we want to live in. Um, and and we can't passively allow that society to be transformed, to be made worse. Um, and so that's, I think, ultimately why why we fight for healthcare, um, why all of us do. Um, and uh, and that's why we have to keep fighting for it. All right, Gordy. Well, thanks for, for being with us today. I so appreciate it. And I hope um, I hope all is well in your world. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, it's good talking to you, Chris. And uh, good hearing the information on, on your end. So, yeah. Uh, and, and don't forget, November 16th. What did you want to tell people? Uh, November 16th, be there. If you want your voice heard, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna hear our voice on November 16th at Randy Delorey's office in Anaganish. Thank you very much, Gordon and Chris, for being with us on this Union Matters podcast today. And I've been your host, Dee Dee Sly. I hope you've enjoyed it, and uh, you can look for it on iTunes, and we're trying to make it available on YouTube as well and SoundCloud and we always put it out on Facebook and we post it to our website. So lots of ways to find our podcast. Have a great day.